Welcome to another episode of the Black Girl Mixtape Podcast. I'm your host, Ebony Janice. Today's guest is Dr. Monica Coleman, who is an award-winning writer, scholar, and minister whose work has radically influenced my own work. I am so looking forward to you having the opportunity to hear what she's been up to and to learn about her book, Bipolar Faith. The brilliance starts now. I'm very excited to have today's guest on. It's Dr. Monica Coleman, um, who has been a major influence on my journey into um, consider even considering myself a, a womanist, particularly a hip hop womanist, because of her writings on what it means to be a what what third wave womanism looks like. And so, I would love for you to just take this time to introduce yourself, however you see fit to introduce yourself. Uh, Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I love seeing all your posts about just all the bold ways we live out our Black womanhood. Um, What is there to say about me? I I teach theology. Uh, I like to say I teach a faith that liberates. I think that our faith should make us more and more free, both socially, you know, socially, politically, and personally. Um, and so the theologies that I teach and that I believe, I think, are ones that help us to be more and more free. Um, I've been teaching students of religion, so like religious leaders and academics, for the last 12 years. I've also taught college students. Um, and I do work in Black religions, theology. Uh, I do some work around public scholarship and public humanities as well. I think it's mainly in some philosophy stuff too, but that's not so interesting. Well, it is to me, but not to most people. <laughs> I love and appreciate that in your introduction, you say a faith that liberates because that's one of the main things that I see in your writing, um, especially in what is your latest book, Bipolar Faith. I'm so blown away by how transparent you are. And as a minister, I just find that to be very unique, honestly, that that seems or it feels very uncommon for much of our tradition for someone to be so transparent about about your life and especially this particular topic. So one of the questions, particularly as a minister um, that I have is, how do you get to this place where you can be so free or where you can feel so free um, in a way that doesn't feel, you know, really in line with what our tradition says about what it means to be a woman in ministry? Uh, That's a great question. I don't think I ever felt like I fit into the tradition of what it meant to be a woman minister at least not when I came through. There weren't a whole lot of women ministers. I didn't see women ministers growing up, not till I went to college. And still there weren't a whole lot, right? Um, and I didn't think of ministry, it wasn't like a career option, right? For girls growing up in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> um, like if boys liked church, they said, oh, maybe you'd be a minister. If girls like church are like, maybe you'll go to church, right? <laughs> it was not an idea that you could grow up to be a leader right maybe a sunday school teacher right or a sunday school coordinator or something or vacation bible school coordinator or missionary but not preacher um so i didn't have any ideas about being a preacher there weren't preachers in my family um and but i was very religious i guess you could say right and i felt that everyone's called to something and so i didn't think that me being called to preach meant that i was now holier Um, I was only 19. So I was like, no, I'm not. I still get to like be a 19 and 20 year old. Um, And I 
began to know the other ministers who were students, seminary students, and was like, oh, look, they're regular people. Like, they're regular 22-year-old guys or 25-year-old guys. Like, they're regular people. And so I didn't think that being a minister meant that I was holy. I meant, it meant that people thought I would say something holy when they asked me a question. But I didn't think it was so different than being called to be a teacher or being called to be a doctor or being called to be whatever we are, a social worker or different things. Um, so that, that helped a lot, right? So I wasn't trying to break through this idea that like, I'm this great preacher up here. I was more like, no, I'm the person who'd rather be in a corner writing and, you're, and God's telling me I have to go talk, right? Um, so in that sense, it was, I didn't, I wasn't pushing, I didn't feel like I was part of this minister thing that I had to break out of. I was more like this kid trying to figure out how to be a minister. Um, but I think a lot of it was, I wrote the stuff I wanted to read, right? <laughs> um, you know, which Alice Walker and Toni Morrison say something very similar. I want what I should have been able to read, what I wanted to read. Um, I wanted someone to say, like, we're just regular people <laughs> and we have regular problems and we date and we have families just like everybody else in terms of being a minister. Um, I think I was probably a writer before I was any of this. I was like that kid in third grade writing class and <laughs> fourth grade writing class. And so I, it was fairly, I felt fairly comfortable just kind of writing um, about my own experiences, kind of what we now, it used to be called creative nonfiction. I don't know what they call it now, right? But kind of a creative nonfiction style. So they're curated experiences, right? You don't tell all your stories, <laughs> um, but ones that would be relevant to whatever you're talking about. And this is all, you know, when, before there was a real internet, right? When there was like rumors of the internet, we're like, that's never gonna happen. <laughs> What's the super highway he's talking about, right? <laughs> it's laughable now, right? <laughs> but um, we just, you know, you just wrote like on paper and with word processors and computers if you could afford one. Um, and so I think it was felt good for me to write. But, you know, you kind of go through these exercises sometimes where they say, if you were to die tomorrow, what did you leave undone, yeah. right? And many people say, oh, I wish I spent more time with my family or oh, I wish I had done this. And for me, it was, oh, I wish I had written this book. Mm. I wish I had told my story. Um, and so I guess that was a big thing, even just for me to feel like, I feel like I have a story to tell and that it will mean something to other people too. I love that. That's the thing that I feel like I am journeying through now in my own walk is that this is, that I need to say this yeah. because it feels very unique to me, but I know that that's not possible. Like I know somebody right. else mm -hmm. has to be able to enter into that as well. But when you, when you were just saying that um, you didn't have family that was in ministry, so you didn't really have a real idea of what it was supposed to look like to be a woman in ministry. And I think that is where my experience drastically different differs. I come from a family full of ministers. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother has six girls and all of them served in some way uh -huh. in some form of ministry and um whether it be i mean i was the bell ringer at sunday school you know when i was like five and yeah. you know teaching babe you know the, the student teacher in baby class when i was six so <laughs> so i was groomed in the baptist church mm. the ministry in this very appropriate way yeah. and so i fascinated um, reading your story and learning about um, the way that you came into ministry because mine was the opposite. Like, just a struggle to feel like, y'all not going to let me preach. 
Y'all not going to say this? And I know I was told to this. Um, so I think that family, and I wonder if that's a thing for other women that have struggled really to find their voice in ministry. If there was, if similar to you, um, they didn't have a, you know, mm-hmm. a reference for what that should look like and or, um, and or if they come from like, you know, really churchy spaces. I'm doing these quote things yeah. in these videos, but... <laughs> So for audio purposes, I'm doing quote fingers right now. No, I, I mean, I think some of it's generational, right? Like the, you know, people younger than me, especially, have more models. Mm-hmm. Um, so on one level, like when I, when I began teaching undergrads 15 years ago, they were like, you never seen a woman minister? Like, it was so normal for them. And I was like, oh my God, yes, this is good. Like something has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I think that women always struggle with finding voice. I think society in general tries to keep us voiceless, right? Or so much of education, especially now, teaches us just to repeat the voices of other people. And it's hard to find your own voice. So when I I teach this intro course at Claremont School of Theology, and it's not about, it's about cultural competency, but somewhere in the beginning of the class, um, I say one of the biggest things that was helpful to me as a woman in ministry was really understanding that God calls me to be me and that sounds really simple like of course right but it meant God didn't call me to preach like other people even really great preachers right who I know and love and their friends and their mentors like they're called to preach like they preach but I didn't know am I supposed to preach like them do I copy this person do I kind of imitate this person do I write like this and and to you know and like no God called me to be me and God needs me God needs them to be them, and God needs me to be me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have a self, right? and I have an identity, and I have a voice. I just had to realize like that was what God wanted, not me to try to be like someone else. Did you ever find yourself trying to hoop or trying to be, you know? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. It was like my, my one of my, my best friend, my sister in ministry, I talk about bipolar face, Cynthia, is a great preacher and she's from a family of preachers. And she like probably close I mean, not that she doesn't put work into sermons, we all do, right? But she's just good at it. And I would be like, write my conclusion for me. We'd be on the phone. I just couldn't close, I couldn't celebrate. Like it's just it's it's just not my thing, right? And so she would write it down and I'd say it, you know. <laughs> so I I actually one of the first things that I that I really wanted to ask you because I have found that in in having more conversations, especially um from a sociopolitical perspective with like black women who identify as feminists, that there are so many people who just haven't at all been introduced to the idea of womanism. Um like like as a, I won't say as an opposite, you know, but in relationship with, you know, Black feminism, um, that just haven't been introduced to womanism at all. As a matter of fact, last year, I think, I think it was last year, Jada Pinkett Smith had tweeted about womanism, and it was like a big thing for, in the womanist community, like, Jada Pinkett Smith talking about womanism. And there were so many people underneath her tweet, like, what is this? What is this? You know? And so I wonder if you could share a little bit about your introduction to um, womanism and how you um, journeyed through like actually owning that title for yourself um, because I you know have read of course that it's a you know it's a conversation of course that you had 
and then um and then how do you find like introducing still you know after all these years of um brilliant black women and scholars you know in in uh, the academy doing this work how do you find still introducing this um practice to people you know after all these years good question um i mean i really came through literature right i was a literature person an undergrad and so um also there was like a locked room in the library and i was like hey i want to know what's behind that door <laughs> and uh, it was the african-american reading room and you had to like go to some other office across the street down underneath crazy places to get a key and so I went, you know, you see a locked door, you feel like you should go inside. <laughs> and I went and got this key. Um, and I was like an economics major at the time, right? Or that's what I thought I was going to be. And they had all these like Alice Walker books in there and Toni Morrison books and Gloria Naylor and poetry. And I was familiar with them, but I was like, wow, I should just sit here and read all these books. <laughs> and so, like, I didn't know Alice Walker had written poetry. I knew The Color mm -hmm. Purple, but I didn't know she had poetry, right? Mm -hmm. And these different things. And so I really came to, I just read, you know, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. Mm -hmm. And that's where I first heard the term womanism. But I was also reading bell hooks, right? So I knew Black feminism. So I didn't really see there being any tension, any difference. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, of course, you know, women are equal. Of course, women, you know, we have particular interests and needs as Black women. Um, I didn't have to be convinced. I just was glad to read the things I was reading. Um, and it, because I, I wasn't a religion person, right? Um, in terms of what I studied, I just was kind, I was very interested in religious, the things that were people call religious that were in the books I was reading. So I really liked James Baldwin. So you kind of encounter Black church. And I love Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, which people call mythology, but I'm like, no, that's just true. Africans fly. That's what happens, right? And um, so the things I was interested in that caught my attention were things that you would say were the spiritual elements of the, of work, of the work. So I was like, well, I guess I should take a religion class so I can learn more about this. And that's when I encountered like Katie Cannon's work and Dolores Williams' work. And I was like, oh, they call themselves womanist. But I still didn't think anything of it. I was like, feminist, womanist, black feminist. You know, it's, you know I'm like 19, 20, 21. It's not making a big difference because I'm like, we're all saying the same thing, right? Um, and so it was really, it took many more years and lots of conversations with colleagues to see, oh, wow, some people see a difference. Um, and I wasn't particularly wedded to one or the other. I was like, we're all going in the same direction <laughs> um, in terms of there are particular experiences, right, that, um, that Black women have. Uh, I mean, of course, we're making generalizations, right, but that we can't separate our race from our gender, from our sexualities. And I think that if you're kind of doing activism work, you feel that more, right? Like you're supposed to choose to do the Black thing or choose to do the women's thing. And you're like, yo, but I'm both. Like, you know, this is not cool what Black men might be doing over here. Like you go to a panel with certain civil rights groups and you're like, where are the women, right? Like, or there are two women and like eight men. And you're like, yo, people, what's that about, right? Or you're in a Black church and you're like, okay, I like Black church. You're like, where are the women at, <laughs> right? Like, or why do women have these crazy rules you think they should follow? And so then you're like, hey, feminist, womanist, right? Mm -hmm. And then I was doing domestic violence work and sexual violence work. And so then you're working with the white women. And you're like, what, you know, black people don't do it that way. Or we, we come at this differently. Or you know you have to 
it, it works differently, right? You know, the kind of outreach and the kind of experiences or if someone pulls somebody's hair, like that's not a small thing, that's big in black communities, right? And so that's to me when you begin to really see, oh, here's exactly why we have this need. Um, so I feel it more kind of being an activist or being on the ground is when the tension occurs much more than in theory, I think. Um, and so then you're like, hey, let me go back to the stuff I was reading about womanists and black feminists. and <laughs> Let's see um, what they're saying. So I think for me, that was really kind of how I came to it. And um, even still, you know, there are many mentors I've had who are black feminists who would who choose to turn black feminists, mm -hmm. um, like Jeanetta Cole and Beverly Guy Sheftal. And there are some mentors I've had who seem to choose the term womanist, right? Like Dolores Williams, who's on my dissertation committee, mm -hmm. Anita Weems, who's used the term. And I'm like, I love them all. <laughs> They're amazing people and they do great work. And they have, you know, opened and shown me so many pathways. So in my heart, I don't even choose, <laughs> right? Um, and I think as a parent to a, to a daughter, um, you, know, you know, a girl identified daughter too, she, you know, I don't use terms at all. You just talk about the principles, right? Like she doesn't need to know it's called feminist or womanist, right? You just need to put, say, you know, girls can do anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that's probably where I am most of the time, just kind of like in parent mode of like, well, how do I teach the content? of what matters. Um, and of course, when I'm teaching graduate students or undergrads, we use the different titles and the different labels. And I say, whatever makes you happy, honestly, right? Um, like if you come to understand black women's particularized experiences in the term womanism, then that's great. And I think um, I like the things that Alice Walker says about it as someone with Southern roots, why she chose the term, why it feels right to her. Um, how, and if you read the stuff, you know, that she was, taught who, her interlocutors from the 1970s and early 80s. I'd want another term too. I want to be like, I'm kind of like y'all, but not really, right? So you, I, I understand that. Um, but I also understand the evolution of Black feminism, right? And I love some of the work that Black male feminists do. Um, I think it's important. I think it's innovative. Um, and, and I like some of the, the political parts of it and some of the power parts of it. I like the way they deal with sex. They do sex way better than religion people. Um, <laughs> Because, yeah. you know, religion people don't do sex well. And so I think both are really needed. Um, but when I'm teaching theology, I usually am teaching womanist theology mm -hmm. and black theology and feminist theologies. And I always say G's, right? Like, it's not like there's one way to do it. Yeah, right. It's like, Cone's not the only black theologian, right? Um, contrary to popular belief in terms of what a wider world would know. It's like, well, there are lots of ways of doing black theology. There are lots of ways of being womanist. And there are lots of ways of being feminist and there are lots of ways of doing disability theology. Um, but they all share that we start with our experience, right? And that our experiences are holy and inform how we understand God and the world. I, that we start with our experience is so, that's actually how I came to Mormonism. Mm -hmm. I never heard anybody preach like Dr. Amita Williams before. Mm -hmm. I, as a matter of fact, I was, um, I was dating this guy and his mom, who I don't really think likes me. Um, there was a conference. It was, she's an elder at this church that we were going to together. There was a conference that weekend. I wasn't going to go. She texts him and says, Ebony needs to get here now. She will love this preacher. I don't even think this woman really liked So the fact that she was like, get Ebony here now. So I get there and I'm sitting in the back. I don't really want to be there because... 
I wouldn't really check for her either. And Dr. Anita Wings, I honestly couldn't tell you what she was preaching about, which really stood out to me as well when Bible your faith when you're telling yeah. that story about you're coming to like, maybe I'm supposed to be preaching. Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And not and she's preaching and you don't really, really remember exactly what she's saying. And right. that's the that's the experience that I was having. Like I've never heard a woman in the pulpit. I've heard many women in the pulpit. I told you I grew up in a church with you know yeah. a lot of you know black women that were in ministry and such women ministry. But I never heard anybody act like this before with the text, you know, and so that for me I had already identified with some form of um equality pursuing, you know, activism as a woman. But I didn't have this religious element of it that was really important to me as well. And that really drew me in. And you you brought up Alice Walker um and her definition. And that's a thing that I really felt like when I get to the end of bipolar faith and you're like you, you come up, you see this definition of bipolar, and it's like this revelation that feels like it's about to heal you. Like some, there's something in that, and that's what I feel like when Alice Walker says, you know, ultimately she's saying, like at the very least, we should be able to name ourselves, and there's yeah. something healing in that. And so I, I just see that all around. Like I appreciate Alice Walker's definition so much because I feel like it gives us that opportunity. Like now we're fighting with each other. Like mm-mm, you shouldn't be in a black feminist, or you shouldn't be a woman. It's just like at the very least. I should be able to call myself whatever I want to call myself. But like, I don't think that there's any anything drastically different from hip hop womanism and third wave womanism. <laughs> yes. But I want that hip hop part because I <laughs> speak in Jay Z on a regular basis. Like that's a that's a, I'm quoting Jay Z more than I'm quoting Paul <laughs> because I think all people should. And that just feels like I want that there. And so when people ask me like, what's the hip hop part for? No, I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, oh, so I, I, I love that. This, um, so this, when you, when you are um, talking about um, life, love, and humanity and brokenness, um, how is that translating now? Like after, after all this time, after discovery, after being able to put this in language, how is that translating into your work now? Um, because I, I don't, towards the end of the book, I don't hear you talking as much about the Xena Project. And so I just wonder, like, how is all of this tying together in the work that you're doing? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Yeah, I, well, by that point, I wasn't, like, you know, kind of chronologically. The book ends in, like, 2004, right? <laughs> and it comes out in 2016. So I don't know if that means it's a sequel or what. But <laughs> there's more, to li- more life happens, right, after the book ends. Um, you know, it's, it's very much, a, it's all a part of me, and I still do work around sexual and domestic violence at times, um, not as much, uh, but that's more, uh, well, it's probably a factor of a couple things. One is it's very hard draining work, um, and so people who do it all the time, like, wow, like, kudos to them, really, because you have to really have a lot of inner fortitude to do it, because it's so sad, and it's so um, depressing and discouraging in many ways, even though the work is deeply rewarding. Um, so I still do speak about sexual and domestic violence when invited, but I'm not doing it on the ground. And I think some of that was just my own burnout factors um, and being called to do other things, right? And then you have the limited hours of the day. So Dina is still a part of my heart. It's part of who I am. I can't imagine like not having Dina. Um, and I guess I just added to it. <laughs> and so as I get, you know, kind of just as stuff comes up, I just, um, I don't actually try and push doing one thing over the other. I just kind of like, oh, whatever people ask me to do, that's what I'll do. Mm-hmm. And inside, I feel like a really 
unified and integrated person. So I would say that I don't feel like I'm split off into different parts. Um, but no, I'm not doing uh, sexual violence work on the ground, but I do still kind of talk about it. I do some writing about it. It's kind of always wrapped into the other work I'm doing. Yeah. I just, when it, with that, I just, I just think that your rituals and your healing mm -hmm. are so, um, I just said, wow, very often <laughs> reading, reading mm -hmm. my polar faith, because um, you would get like each season or mm -hmm. each, each part, there's like, a another set of rituals that you're participating in to really just kind of stay afloat and so that was very powerful for me because i saw i saw a lot of myself in that and i i had to go back and reread some stuff like wait a minute girl do we need to talk to a therapist about this like i never i never identify you know just certain words come up for you and you're like wait a minute i never i never thought about that so those the rituals of the way that you hug yourself together was just really empowering for me, and I'm just wow. So I'm doing that is what I'm doing more of now, where I'm okay. moving from my work toward. Um, because I honestly stumbled into that stuff; like I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I just was like, well, I guess this is something I should do. Yeah. Let me try to figure this out. Or, Let me be a dancer. Like I'm just like gonna <laughs> jump out the window with this. this is right. <laughs> um, but in hindsight, I'm like, oh. I'm a ritualist. Who knew? Right. So I am putting more energy into, um, you know, I'm writing about, I'm teaching myself to build a website. I decided that I can do it myself. So I'm almost done uh, with my new website, which is called liberatingfaith.com. You could go to it, but it's not done. Um, <laughs> and I am going to talk more about spiritual practices and about rituals. Um, because I really do believe, and I guess this is the part that connects to Dina more explicitly. Um, I think it's so important to acknowledge kind of the losses that we've had in our lives, both in our per individual lives and in our like historic and cultural lives, right? Like in our families' lives. Um, not just to name it and be like, oh, look, there it is, which is important. But to remember that we carry these things in us. We carry our challenges and we carry our traumas within us. Um, but they can also be healed. Right. And there's amazing work that like therapists do, but I'm a religion person, not a therapist. Right. And so I do ritual work. And so I think there are really, there are rituals and there are prayers and there are practices we have that literally help us to heal the past and heal ourselves. And I'm really kind of digging that right now. That's where some of my work is. No, I love that. I'm, I was actually going to ask you like, what, what specifically are, like, what are you working on right now? So thank you for going there. I mean, I, academically, I, I have a different answer, but in terms of like the stuff I'm like doing for the people, um, <laughs> that's like, that's like, and that's really kind of what I'm really excited about. And I'm kind of doing some more training in that so I can be better I at it. <laughs> I, I really want people that are, that are um, listening to this podcast to read Bipolar Faith to really understand when I say like, what I'm talking about um, mm -hmm. is. I'm thinking one of the things that comes to my mind. I'm thinking about when you did that um, eulogized and you know the burial of your former self, and I that was that was just so profound to me because it was like you got this thing for yourself, and then you just literally went all out with it to be <laughs> perform. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, as someone in ministry, mm -hmm. um, as a woman, like all these all these identities that I have, there's, as a black woman, there's so many things that I feel like keep us from being able to, like, to go all out, right? Like, 
what is my family going to say? What is the church going to say? What is the, you know, like all of these things mm-hmm. that keep us from being able to, but how, how profound that healing seems to be for you because you would get into these spaces and really give yourself completely to it. Like, like it wasn't a thing at all for you to give yourself completely to, to that. And um, so yeah, I definitely, I'm, I'm like team, everybody needs bipolar base. I actually have oh. a family for, you know, for some time, I'm like, y'all gotta read this. Thank you. There are definitely some mental health conversations mm-hmm. um, within my own family and you know local community. But mm-hmm. I think um, this book just at the very least gives some language for. And um, so I appreciate that so much. Buy the book. Buy the book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I I I mean, I wanted to read like a faith journey and like you know a memoir of madness, as they call it. But I also wanted to just be a black girl story, right? Like, these are the songs I listened to, the kind of churches I went to, the boys I liked, right? Like, I still wanted to be, like, this is a girl, a black girl story. And so I'm saying I it's so good like that it. because it's, like, um, as I was reading it, mm-hmm. because it's so very different from your academic work, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I already liked you, but this made me feel like, oh, me, Monica, this is the homie. Like, I know her. I felt, <laughs> I felt like I... I feel I like do. this. <laughs> yes. And I, I just appreciate that transparency so much, like, to be able to share that. I really just want to thank you for, um, for your work. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm glad that you're telling your story using the mediums that you use. Um, and I think it is important not to be afraid, right, you know, of sharing our truths. Um, putting it out there. Partly, I don't think a lot about. I just kind of like, I kind of like throw it out there and go, right (laughs) like you want people to read it but then you don't want them to read it right so I like read the book but just don't tell me you've read it (laughs) so I don't feel embarrassed or something um and I I mean what I should say though it has it didn't come up in the transparency there are losses right so when people are like oh I'm afraid of what my family's gonna say or what they're gonna think like those are not irrational fears right um it's not always received well there were people in my family who were not happy about what I wrote. They didn't say it wasn't true, they just said they didn't like it. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I could see if you said like, that's not true. But they were just like, well, that's not nice. I'm like, well, no. I mean, you know, what do you say? Um, and so I do wanna affirm that that is a real thing. Like there is a cost to laying out your life, right? To laying out parts of your story um, of, of where there are stigmas and where there are prejudices and where individuals who may prefer to tell a different story um, or spin a different story don't like what you've told, right? If you're, if you're dedicated to a truth-telling kind of process, um, little T truth, right? Um, so I will say, yes, that there, are, there is a cost. Um, when Jesus says count the cost of discipleship, like that's a thing, right? Um, but I will say like a like I think it's true for most of us who stay in ministry work is the reward is greater, right? Like if it, when it be, when it's meaningful to somebody else, when someone else hears a story they've never heard, when someone else hears a story from a pulpit, from a book, from a scholar that they didn't think was possible, or they said, that's me too. If someone else feels less alone, uh, if someone else feels closer to God, right? If someone else feels closer to their own truth or their own healing, then that's all that matters, right? like then it's worth it. To me, I said that's, to say it theologically, that's where salvation happens. 
Um, but yeah, there, I just wanted to kind of put both sides of that out there. That that is, I guess, the the reality of the transparency. And I do it in part because God told me I could. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, God said, because you can. And I'm like, oh, I guess you're right, God. <laughs> I would say for sure that I saw there's so much, even um, like earlier in the book when you're talking about your grandmother, there were so many, what you said, and I'll sum it up in this, what you said about this, the Black Girl story, there were mm-hmm. so many, you know, just the language of um, being a young Black girl to being a, you know, an adult person. I I saw myself in so many ways in that book, even in spaces that I didn't go into the book expecting to see myself. Mm-hmm. And um, that that for me, what I always t- my one of my favorite parts of the outside definition of womanism is the daughter says to her mother, "Mom, I'm going to Canada. I'm taking several slaves with me." And the mother says, "You're going to be the first." Yeah, and I love that because to me, that's what womanism about. Womanism is about this conversation that if the daughter wouldn't have said, "Mom, I'm going." Would mama have ever said, oh, girl, let me tell you, you first. And I think that these, what happens in bipolar faith is, like I said earlier, you get language that I didn't even know to say it like that, or I didn't even know to think it that way, or I didn't even know to kind of interrogate that a little bit more. And that's so powerful. So if nobody else, <laughs> if nobody else was moved, I have been so moved just by um, experiencing both your scholarship and your ministry. Oh, thank you. Is there anything else that you're working on that you would like to share before? Well, if you give me a week, I'll get liberatingfaith.com back up. I'm trying to do public writing and, uh, you know, I guess blogging is dead in 2018, but I'm like, I want to keep writing. Um, <laughs> so look there. I'm going to also start doing some more online classes. For, you know, because not everyone can get to seminaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll all be at liberatingfaith.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I have little t-shirts that have the, liber- you know, you see me in my t-shirts as a faith that liberates. Yeah. So you can get, I finally found a way, everyone's asking for them. I'm like, how can I get them to people? So uh, if you go to amiddleplace.com, okay. I've got a bunch of my little t-shirts up there and still working on merch. I had to be talked into it, but I was like, oh, they are kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody who told me to do it a long time ago, and I said it, I said you were wrong. I was wrong. You were right. Who wants this? I was like, oh yeah. So you can grab a T-shirt or little doohickey, little little stuff over there. Thank you for listening to the Black Girl Mixtape podcast. The work of Black Girl Mixtape can continue with the support of listeners like you. Visit blackgirlmixtape.com and choose the donate page to support our lecture series tour. Or if you're a non-Black person and you recognize that you learn for free in the space with Black women on a regular basis, choose the voluntary reparations option and subscribe to give on an ongoing basis. Listen to Black women, trust Black women, protect Black women, elect Black women, support Black women. Until next time.